Okay, um, talk number 18, I believe. Yes, that's right, number 18 in um, our church life series. And uh, tonight we're going to be turning our attention to um, the phenomenon in the Bible of, of deacons. So we're, we're going to read from Acts 6. And uh, if you turn with me to it, Acts, Acts chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to read the first six verses. We've spent quite a lot of time looking at elders in the church, but um, also the early church did have deacons. So this is something that we need to know about. So let's, let's read the, the first six verses of uh, Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, we've, we've got to understand what's, what's going on here. We've got to get the, 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 the actual context here. Now, you remember, this, this is at the dawn of the early church, the dawn of the Christian church. And what's happened is the apostles have, have seen thousands of people come to know the Lord. And so what they're doing is that they're, they're, they're trying to lead this, this, this massive, you know, sort of church in Jerusalem, okay, i.e. church in the sense of all the believers there. And obviously what we're going to be seeing tonight is more examples of, of how organization or structure gets implemented as it is actually needed and not before. And, and at this point, what's happening is that the, obviously the apostles are, are teaching and training the people. Um, we know that uh, what they were teaching and training them to do was that eventually, although there was a, you know, some stuff en masse going on here, that what happened was that each believer was broken down into a particular little church meeting in someone's house. So you've got the church, as it were, of, in the city, in Jerusalem. But of course we know that the disciples went about breaking people down so that each person was part of a particular church that met in someone's house. And we've, we've, you know, we've seen that each of these churches governed itself. They were independent churches, but obviously related into other churches in the area in the sense that they shared ministries, they all knew the apostles and, uh, you know, and sort of like they knew each other and, you you know, were kind of related together just because of relationships. And so what, what we're seeing in the Acts of the Apostles is the way that the apostles organise everything. And we know that the outcome was that each believer was to be part of a particular little church meeting in someone's house. And we've, we've seen that. But what's happening here is a problem that is arising in the context of all the little churches together in Jerusalem as one kind of unit, as it were. And what's, what's actually happened, remember, at Pentecost, Jews had come in from all over the empire and they had become believers. So you've got thousands of believers here at this point in the church's history. And 
what's what's happening? You've got two lots of believers. You've got the the the, the Jews who who lived in Jerusalem, if you like, the indigenous, the, the homegrown ones, and uh, they they're what the Bible refers to as the Hebraic Jews. But also you've got the Grecian or Hellenistic Jews. Now these are the Jews who have come in from the outside. Remember, Jews were spread out around the whole of the Roman Empire. And, but they would come in for the festivals in Jerusalem. And so what's happened is that many, many of these converts are actually Jews who have come in from the outside with their families. And what they're doing is they're staying around in order to get teaching and training from the apostles so they know what to do when they go back to their hometowns and tell people about Jesus and get churches going. And of course, what we see they're being trained to do is to literally, you know, is to simply have each church based in a house with a small number of people. And when it gets too large to function in the way that we've seen churches do, then they just become, you know, they divide down and become more little churches meeting in other people's houses. And so that, that's what the apostles are, are, are part of what the apostles are teaching and training all these people. They're giving them the teaching, just enable them to grow in the Lord personally and individually as disciples. But this is all part and parcel of what's going on when we read that daily they got together and they continued in the apostles' doctrine and stuff like that. But one of the problems that has been caused, obviously that has to be met here, is that many of these Jews who have come in, and we, we saw a bit about this in an earlier talk, didn't we? Um, obviously, they, 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 they didn't have occupations, their, their money was back home, by and large, and they needed to be cared for. Therefore, the church in Jerusalem, all right, corporately, had to come up with a welfare system, as it were, to be providing for all these people who have come in from the outside and are staying in order to be discipled by the apostles. And uh, remember, it was very soon after this that, that, that persecution arose and they were all scattered back to where they had come from. Now, one of the things that, that needed to happen was that obviously the widows had to be looked after and the early church would distribute food daily so that they weren't left out. And this was something by and large being organised by the apostles. The apostles were doing a great deal at this particular time. They're kind of acting like elders to all the churches. Although interestingly enough, we saw in an earlier talk as well, that when you have the big kind of get together um, at the Jerusalem church, when Paul comes down to sort out the issue about the circumcision party, we then see that by then, but it was all over 15 years later, that then the Jerusalem church had elders of its own. So so by then you would have all the little churches, individual churches in Jerusalem, but they would have elders of their own because time had passed and the Lord had kind of raised them up. But the situation that we're seeing here is that a practical matter arises that the apostles kind of weren't really keeping their ear to the ground in regards to. And what it is, it's the, the widows who are of the Hellenistic Jews, the ones who have come in from the outside, they are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now this causes murmuring, and that's, that's never, never a good sign. When, when murmuring happens, um, there's, there's the sign that there's something wrong, something needs to be attended to, and needs to be attended to properly. And so what happens is, we, we, you know, and we saw this when we looked at the way that the church governs itself, the, the twelve, the apostles, kind of acting in a capacity as elders in that sense, they take the lead. And they say, goodness, yes, there is a problem here. We're neglecting this because we've just run out of time. This is a practical task. Up until then, the apostles were the dog's bodies, or, you know, sort of on their own. But now what's happening is that they're going to need other people to be dog's bodies and to take some of the practical responsibility out of their hands. And so what they're saying, look, we're, we're so hard pushed, we need to be praying, we've got so much teaching to do. And remember, at this point, that the apostles are receiving from the Lord that revelation through the Holy Spirit that he promised, um, as we saw in John 14, 15 and 16 in other talks, that they're receiving all the truth, the plan, 
the you know sort of like the blueprint for everything is being unfolded to them and so they're, they're needing time for prayer and waiting on the Lord and uh, you know to be able to do the teaching and so what they say look brothers choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and what we saw here is that the apostles as leaders take the lead and they say look here's here's what we need to do and uh, down in verse 5 it says this proposal pleased the whole group but the apostle said you choose them so the group thought yeah that's that's a good idea have some men who can kind of just do this this stuff that's getting left out and so basically the church then chooses these people. So here again, we're seeing that this is consensual. It's not the apostles acting as elders coming from on high. This is what we've decided. This is what's going to happen. But this idea is put forward and all the believers agree to it. And so the apostles say, well, look, you, you choose, choose the men who are going to, to do this. And what's tremendously interesting here is that when you look at the men who were chosen, all of them have Greek names. And what that means is that they are of the contingent whose widows are being neglected, those coming in from the outside. And I suppose when you come in from the outside, maybe you're always at a little bit of a, a disadvantage. And so here, all the, the home believers, all the believers who actually live in Jerusalem, that what they do, and this is a lovely, lovely example of deferring to others, they deliberately chose Greek men, and this made absolute or, or Greek Jews, all right. And this made absolutely sure that what had gone wrong, the Greek Jewish widows having been left out, wouldn't happen again. So this is a lovely way of the church choosing seven men in order to meet a need in in the ab absolute perfect way. Notice as well that these men are just being chosen to one particular function as well. There's just one problem that has come up. This, this isn't a kind of a handing over all practical duties uh, you know, to, you know, to people who have been officially set aside for it. This was just seven men who were chosen to meet one particular need. Now, let's, let's just return to what I said earlier about, can you see here the way that the Lord led in this when the need arose? So there are many, many things in church life. You know, I mean, one might think, oh, okay, so what are we going to do about deacons? Well, you'll see by the time we get to the end of this study that as, 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 as one church, we, we probably don't actually need any. But what, what we are seeing here is that there are lots of things that when you look ahead into the future and you think, well, my goodness, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? But what you'll find is the Lord will lead us and he will give us what we need to do at the time when we need to do it. So if a time ever arises when we need deacons, well, the Lord will show us at that particular time. I mean, just, just, just think about it. Um, you know, that sort of, well, hopefully, obviously, we're praying that we won't always just be one church here in Essex. We're, we're praying that we will see growth, that we will see people coming to know the Lord. Indeed, that we'll see believers understanding a biblical way of doing church and wanting to be part of churches like that rather than staying in unbiblical churches. And so, therefore, we, we project ahead and we think, well, my goodness, when the Lord does add to our numbers and when we have to start dividing up into lots of churches and bringing lots of new churches into being, well, goodness gracious me, how, how are we going to go about that? Well, the truth is that the Lord will show us at the time. At the moment, we're not big enough. We're, we're okay just as one church. But when we're too big, to be doing what a church ought to do, to function in the way that we're meant to function, well, then it will be time to think about dividing into smaller churches. Well, the Lord will show us what to do at that particular time. So structures only get installed when they are actually needed. And remember, here, 
in the Acts, what we're seeing is that the disciples go virtually from uh, 120 people. Well, there's a there's you know few churches immediately, but suddenly they have thousands of people, and so they have to organize things and the bible doesn't tell us in detail how they did it we know what everything was organized to that everyone would be part of a, a, a small church that met in someone's houses but they they had to transition from virtually uh, kind of helping everyone almost like one mega church to to kind of getting breaking that down to what it should always have been but obviously when you start something it's you know i mean it's never quite as it should be from the word go but to breaking that down so that everyone was 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 in an individual smaller church and yet as we've seen they still had the capability to mobilize together when when there was good reason for that so beware of um what I call organisers. Beware of people who come along like time and motion men and they say, well, we've got to do this, that and the other and, and if we do this strategy and if we do that strategy, that, that somehow everything's going to fall into place. Beware of that. The church, as we've seen, is not an organisation. It is an organism. And in the talk we saw of body life, the key thing is to understand is not just that you're doing something because it's right, but that you're doing it because that is the right time and it's the time that the Lord is actually doing it through you. So what we're basically seeing, and this is important as well, remember these men are being appointed to do one practical task. Okay. Now, this is not a situation, I think, where one individual church is going to be having deacons. Certainly not more than one. Can you see, this is a response to a problem that has arisen that affects multiple churches in a geographical locality. Now obviously, one of the problems we have today that they didn't have then, is that there was only one type of church then biblical churches. In fact, you wouldn't have even needed to talk about biblical churches because no one at this point had un invented unbiblical churches. There was only one type of church. And so therefore, because they were all set up the same and all, you know, sort of like, you know, doing the same thing, it was obvious that they could, you know, work together and mobilize together very, very easily. And that's, that's a problem that, you know, that of obviously we face today. You can't uninvent unbiblical churches. They're there and there are believers in them. So, so, you know, sort of like sometimes you hear people in house churches talking about the city-wide church, you know, that sort of like all the, all the churches in an area get together. Well, that would, that would be fine if you just had biblical churches, but the trouble is you don't. And very often, unbiblical churches are far more suspicious of biblical churches than they are of other unbiblical ones. And so obviously there are, are problems there. But the point here, can you see that this is, if you like, an, an inter-church response to have deacons? It doesn't mean that an individual church won't decide that maybe it needs to appoint a deacon for a particular, you know, sort of... A situation that arises but here what we're looking at is that this this is something that comes into play when the elders the leaders are just too stretched to be making sure that whatever needs to be done is being done and so therefore in individual churches if they've got you know sort of like a couple of elders maybe or whatever well that shouldn't arise precisely because the church is so small but when you get needs that arise and you've got a larger group of churches well then that's different and then maybe those churches together will appoint from amongst themselves a number of deacons for whatever and let me say as well that as, as 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 one grows and i mean certainly here in the jerusalem church they were sharing leadership and uh, anywhere where you know sort of biblical churches are coming into being in the early days where they're blessed you know and sort of like you know blessed enough to see growth and other churches coming into being then there may indeed be a sharing out of of 
leadership. You may find that there are going to be newer churches without elders. Well, churches that already have elders can kind of be sharing their elders out, you know, to, you know, to just be looking after all those particular churches. Now, let me say immediately that precisely because we've seen that leadership, that eldership is not hierarchical, this doesn't turn into a denomination. We are not talking about having some hierarchy in control over multiple churches. You know, so that you've got all these house churches and they become some official network or stream, uh, whatever language you want, all kind of under one umbrella of uh, overarching hierarchical leadership going up to the top. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you do understand that leadership is purely functional, well then it's completely safe to share leadership out. Because no one's trying to take control of churches or be in charge, because the whole point here that we're seeing in a biblical church is that each church governs itself. Now that is the safety and that is the protection. And so we're going to find in the future that we'll end up in situations where the Lord will just show us at the time what we're meant to do, how we're meant to meet various needs. It will never go against the Bible, but there are certain things, deacons being an example. Well, and elders, you know, I mean, in some churches it's ridiculous to say you've got to have elders from day one. That's, that's nuts, because there are qualifications for elders. And probably having elders who aren't spiritually qualified, i.e. they're not mature enough as believers, will be worse than having no elders. And in times like that, that's when it's helpful maybe to have someone who's coming in from the outside who can lend a hand and, you know, give a bit of advice and direction here and there, you know, safely, who doesn't consider himself to be over the church in any way. And this is, this is all the sort of thing that we see working in the New Testament. And certainly here with deacons, deacons arose when the need that they served arose. So you don't just decide, right, who are the deacons going to be? And as I'm saying, this is very much a kind of an inter-church. This is when you get what you might call a cluster of churches in an area with, with, with common interests, obviously, because of locality and common relationships between them. And so here we see that raising up these seven men was the answer to the practical problems. Now let's, let's just say or ask the question, well, how do we know that these men are actually deacons? Because, after all, the word, in these verses we've read, the word is never actually used. So, so, so let's, let's kind of say, well, how do we know that these guys are deacons? So let's, let's just think, think through this. Uh, okay. The word deacon is used five times in the New Testament. And the Greek word is diakonos, and it simply means a servant. Now, the word is used of domestic servants, um, it's used of civil rulers, or, you know, I mean, you know, with civil rulers, I mean, here in, you know, sort of like we talk about civil servants. Again, the push being that they're servants, they're there to serve society at large. Um, it's used of believers to Jesus, we are servants to him, and it's used of believers to each other, that we're, we're to serve each other as Jesus has served us, and then it's, it's, refer, it's used in regards to believers serving the church, and it simply, it simply means one who serves. That is what the Greek word translated deacon actually means. And in verses 1 to 2, we, we, we have it in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And that word, distribution, is diaconia. And the push behind it is waiting on tables. That there were people who were literally servants in the sense they would wait on tables, waiters if you like, and this problem arose 
due to the need of distributing food to the widows who had no way of providing for themselves. And so, really, a deacon is a server at tables, all right? And so, therefore, it was logical to call them, and it appears that as time went on, the church actually began to use this in a technical word, you know, in a technical way, and would actually have deacons. And so if we uh, just, just have a quick look, for instance, at Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, uh, one of the things that we've noted, haven't we, um, is how little the Bible ever use, you know, refers to elders. Well, it's the same for deacons, but in Philippians 1, and it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, they're the elders, and deacons. And so here we have a situation in Philippi where this, this would say to me that you, you in that city had a multiple church situation and that they had had calls to recognise officially deacons to be taking charge of practical matters um, where the elders in those situations were already so busy and, and tied up that they, they couldn't be doing it properly. And so therefore we, we see there that deacons became an actual, if you like, technical term for a, a particular group of people chosen by churches to be meeting certain practical situations. So let's 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 just sum up basically what what we've got here. All right, deacons are needed in a situation where you have multiple biblical churches in an area. I mean, okay, you may have one individual church that has need to recognise and appoint a deacon for something. That's absolutely fine. But by and large, the the, the situation in which we see deacons emerging and being referred to in Scripture is usually of multiple church situations. And so therefore we see that when elders in situations like this are unable to be doing all the general dog's body, because remember an elder is a dog's body, but sometimes there's so much dog's body duty to be done that it's beyond the elders. They just don't have time anymore with everything else that they're doing. That is the time when um, deacons are appointed. And we have seen that they are appointed by the church. The church is concerned in a situation like that. You might have two, three, four churches. You might have ten churches who are saying, here's a need that we all have a common interest in, we need to get together, all right, and we need deacons. Now, in a situation like that, however many churches are involved, it is all the believers in all those churches together, corporately, who decide that deacons are needed and decide who those deacons are going to be. So again, this is something, it is done completely consensually, because whenever you see decisions being made, whether it's an individual church, one church in someone's house, all right, that, that, that smallest individual unit of the church in Scripture, or whether it's a conglomeration of churches together in an area, all right, we always see that decision-making, say, whether individual churches or corporately together as groups of churches, the fundamental push behind that decision-making process was always consensus. Elders, apostles, people from the outside may lead the debate, leaders will facilitate the debate, but the decision is always taken by the church corporately. And then we see that when the church has chosen who these men are going to be, the elders in that situation, the leaders in that situation of those churches, lay hands on them and appoint them. And let's notice as well that they are appointed here to an individual task. So it's not a choice of when you get a situation whereby deacons are appointed and they do all the practical stuff. That would be ridiculous. 
Again, one of the things we're seeing in Scripture is that the push is that we're all doing the work of the ministry, whatever that work is, whether it's the spiritual side of things or whether it's the practical side of, of things. We're all called to serve. So it's not a question of having deacons and they're doing the practical service and that gets it off everyone else's hands. No, this is appointing men to one particular need or maybe one or two particular needs, but they're clearly defined needs. These are not men who are doing all the practical work in the churches uh, so that other people don't have to do it, okay? So, therefore, where we're seeing, oh yeah, let me let me say as well that um, often you'll find um, in in scripture that these guys who, who we've seen here, they had other functions, other ministries outside of this. Now, obviously, deacons aren't elders. Almost by definition, they're not elders. Okay, but we we see that Philip was an evangelist. And uh, Stephen, though he didn't last long, Stephen actually became the very first martyr that the Christian church saw. But Stephen had a ministry of the working of miracles and moved powerfully in the word of wisdom. So again, these, these, these men, they're, they're going to have other interests, other ways the Lord is using them, but we're, we're just concentrating here on, on their function as um, actual deacons. Now let's let's just turn now to the question of the qualifications for a deacon. We've certainly seen with elders that not just anyone can be an elder. You have to be qualified for it. Now obviously we've seen that this qualification is all to do with character. It's all to do with Christian maturity. It's all to do with living a stable Christian life. And, and, and displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so that's going to be obviously the same for deacons as well. But we have got to see here that again, when it comes to deacons, you don't just choose anyone, okay? And, and indeed, in, uh, back in, in, in Acts 6, the main passage we've been in, in verse 3, the apostles say, brothers, so they're addressing the whole church, brothers, choose seven, seven men from among you. Now again, Let's, let's just understand this. This is kind of to do with the church making decisions. It's a government thing. And the push is that you choose, the whole church chooses, it's consensual, and choose from among them. So again, you know, any, any form of leadership function is, you know, raised up indigenously. Okay, but they say choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So, therefore, it's quite clear that you don't just appoint anyone to be elders, uh, sorry, to be deacons. There have to be clear qualifications. So, when believers are getting together in any instance to appoint deacons, then everyone has got to be clear in their minds that it's not practical ability that is the main push. There may be people with excellent practical ability, but they may not come up to the qualifications of character that scripture outlines. So therefore, we're, we're going to see that there are qualifications for deacons. So therefore, if we go now to 1 Timothy, and if you find chapter 3, and um, in a passage where Paul has been dealing with the qualifications for elders, he then moves on to deal with the qualifications for deacons. So if you turn to 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, and um, find verse 8. Right, so um, 1 Timothy... Uh, chapter 3 and uh, verse 8 right now then in the first seven verses Paul has been dealing with um, elders and he's been looking at the qualifications for elders and, um, and in verse 8 we read deacons likewise so, so we have a change of subject so we have something similar Likewise, but it's a change. So he's been dealing with the qualification of elders. Now he says, well, likewise, so there's something similar here, but there's something different. The thing that's similar is qualifications for a function, but the thing that's different is that it's talking about a different group of men. It's talking about deacons. So, so let's actually um, go, go through this and, um, and, and to see what we've got. And, and he says, 
deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives, and we'll be back to this in detail, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus, uh, their faith in Christ Jesus. Now let's 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 actually just go go through this and um, try and uh, you know sort of get the uh, the understanding here. Now worthy worthy of respect. Now now this this is kind of. The Greek word here is, is sem, semnus, and it, it means seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. So it, it's talking about in, integrity, a man of integrity, honest, of, of high principle. So, so there, there's the basic character. You've got someone who, who is, is a man of integrity, someone who really is sold out to the Lord and whose life is showing that forth. Now it says sincere and um, a better translation would be not double-tongued. Uh, the Greek word here means literally to say the same thing twice and of course what what you've got here is that some people they'll say one thing in one occasion and something else on another. The, I, the, their words you know they'll change their stories according to you know to you know to which way the wind blows, or or, or they're not going to say one thing to one person and a different thing to somebody else. So so what we've got here is 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 the idea that they're not to be devious, that they're, they're not to be manipulative, or that they're to be consistent in truth. Um, you know I mean there's out and out telling lies, um, but 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 there's a dishonest only letting out a certain amount of the truth. Now, sometimes that can actually be the wise thing to do, but obviously this is referring to the equivalent of not being honest, just, you know, for your own benefit. And, and, and so, th therefore, this is part of, of, of that semnos thing, you know, sort of, of integrity, kind of completely honest. And um, not indulging in much wine, that kind of speaks for itself. Moderate. There's no use having a <laughs> a legless deacon, is there? Um, and then Paul goes on to say that uh, they must not pursue dishonest gain, and um, you know, sort of other translations they say not greedy for gain. And of course, there's there's two things here. There's there's greed. They mustn't be greedy. Greed is a sin. Wanting more and more money, you know, just wanting more and more money is, is, is wrong. I mean, that, 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 that's greed. And also, um, there's dishonest, you know, sort of after dishonest gain. So there are people who make a quick buck, however unethical that quick buck might be. And, and so you've got the, these, these two things. So obviously they mustn't be a lover of money, they mustn't be greedy, and neither must they be what you might call a bit of a dodgy character, dodgy dealing when it comes to finances. They've got to be above reproach when it comes to honesty. Okay. Um, and then Paul says that they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So, and again, there's two things here. Firstly, that they're, they're living the Christian life in an ongoing way, that they have a clear conscience, so that they're staying right with God. Now, having a clear conscience doesn't mean that you haven't sinned, but it means if you have, you've put it right. That's what a clear conscience is, and you're doing what you can to not sin again. But the other side of this is uh, that when it talks about um, holding the, the, the deep truths um, of 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 the faith, that they are men who have a real grasp 
of Scripture. That, that here are men who have a real grasp of what you might call the whole counsel of God. So, so it's no use having someone here who's an ignoramus when it comes to understanding the truth of Scripture. And, and one of the dangers with, with stuff like, I mean, obviously, some people are more practical-minded than intellectually-minded. That's absolutely true. But one of the things that we see in the church, in the New Testament, is that people who are more intellectually-minded, they have no excuse to just be in an ivory tower and never getting their hands dirty. That would be ridiculous. But, in the same way, people who are more practically minded ought to be growing in the knowledge of the truth. So they ought to be struggling, it, you know, sort of like with understanding Scripture more and more. So it's not saying that anyone ought to be performing above, if you like, their intellectual level. No. But whatever mental capacity they have, they ought to be using that to the full to grow in understanding of Scripture. We are called to love the Lord with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And so that's important. So it will be very easy when choosing deacons to just go for someone with the practical, you know, the person who has the best practical skills for whatever the, um, you know, the uh, uh, particular need is. But that would be a mistake. Now, you don't want to choose someone who hasn't got the practical skills, but if someone has only got the practical skills, skills and doesn't, you know, have these uh, characteristics as well and doesn't understand the faith well, well then they shouldn't be appointed uh, in order to be deacons. So, um, you know, sort of therefore we're getting this broad picture. So these, like elders, are mature Christian men. It doesn't say apt to teach, that, that will be specific to elders, but we're still seeing that these are mature Christian men, okay. And then Paul says, they must first be tested so since they will so-and-so ought to be a deacon, well, okay, have a close look, make sure that he comes up to all this. And uh, then if he does, well, okay, go ahead. He would be safe to um, appoint as um, a deacon. And, uh, and then if, if there is nothing against them, if they're blameless, let them serve as deacons. So the point is you've got to make sure that uh, people, by and large, do come up to the qualifications here that we're talking about. Now, verse 11, we're going to come back to in, in just a moment, all right, because it's a bit of a strange verse, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Now, this thing, in the Greek there, it's, it's kind of a one-woman man. That's, that's, that's the push behind husband of one wife. And I'm not sure that this is, um, you know, in that sense, uh, primarily concerned to disqualify bachelors but but the push behind this as we you know we saw this with um the elders is that there was a problem with polygamy in the early church and so the point is that they would have people in the early church who had more than one wife because they had multiple wives when they got converted well you don't tell them to you know just pick one and throw the others away that would be crazy and so the point is that whereas the early church made it very clear that that was wrong they didn't make you you know sort of dispose of your your spare wives and so therefore there could have been men in the church who were mature in every other way, but they had more than one wife. Now, if they'd have been appointed in any way to a leadership thing, whether it was eldership or deacons, that would have put out the wrong signal, almost saying that polygamy is okay, go ahead and marry, you know, marry someone else as well. No, and, and, and so I think the push there is, as with eldership, that they, they did have to be um, literally just, just the husband of one wife. And also, we see the important thing about managing their household well, that they are the head of their, their family, and that their family is in order, that there's a good marriage, a good relationship between this guy and his wife, and that there's a good relationship between them and parents as their children, and that, uh, you know, and that the children are well behaved, you know, that they're not unruly, that they're being brought up in, in the Lord. And, and so, again, all this is, is tremendously important. And then in verse th 13, it says, Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the point is, 
that 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 if you if you have an excellent standing, you're going to be looked up to by people. So therefore, if you're going to be looked up to by people, you are an example. So therefore, the early church made sure that anyone who was being looked up to because of a particular function, be it eldership being a deacon or whatever okay anyone who was looked up to had to be a good example an example of mature christian discipleship and not a bad example in any way at all right okay well so we've got to um go back to this rather strange verse 11 now and um and in looking at this 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 is also where we're going to have to raise and answer the question, well, can women be deacons? Are there deaconesses in Scripture? And is this verse referring to them? Uh, immediately, my answer is going to be no. Women cannot be deacons. And women were not deacons in the early church. And remember, let's you know, let's 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 keep keep clear as well that with deacons, we're just talking about odd job guys. That's 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 all we're talking about. So I mean, again, you know, sort of like when women feel disenfranchised, what are they feeling disenfranchised from? Being odd job women. I, I mean, that's silly. Even with eldership. You know, I mean, the biggest part of eldership, as we've seen, is, is odd job man. I mean, that, that's what, you know, when, you know, when people, often there are people who want to be able to be in leadership, but the, the type of leadership they want to be in isn't what you see in scripture anyway. And I think probably for a lot of those people, whether they're, they're guys or whether it's women folk, would be that if they actually understood <laughs> what leadership actually is uh, in scripture, they, they they possibly wouldn't, you know, sort of be um, so interested in it. But in regards to that, you know, whether or not, you know, sort of like motives are right or wrong, nevertheless, um, we do not see in Scripture um, any hint that deacons could be women. Indeed, we, we have seen that everyone, everyone who has um, been a deacon so far, it was always men. And, and so, therefore, if, if that's the case, and, uh, I mean, let's, let's face it, a, a, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. I mean, that, that kind of once, once and for all time. A deacon must be a one-woman man. Uh, nowhere does the Bible say that a deacon uh, must be a one-man woman. And, and, and so that, that is pretty conclusive. But uh, never, nevertheless, let's um, actually have a look at this, this rather strange verse in verse 11. And it, it's certainly one of those verses which is, is easier to demonstrate what it doesn't mean <laughs> than what it actually does mean. But let's, let's, let's ask, I mean, from verse 8 to 10, Paul has been dealing with the qualifications of a deacon. And then, in verse 12, he starts off by saying, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. So he actually mixes in there, must be, um, you know, kind of the head of his family. Now, of course, being the head of the family is the one thing that a woman can't do, because the husband is the head of the family. The wife is told to submit to the husband. So, so obviously, you know, I mean, the Bible isn't gobbledygook. I mean, Paul isn't contradicting himself all over the place. So, so let's ask, well, this verse 11, what exactly does it mean? Now, in my translation, well, I'll give you the literal. In the same way, the women are to be women worthy of respect. So, here, whatever your translation says, if it says anything other than the women, or likewise women, it's a wrong translation. They're inferring something in it according to their understanding of it. I'm not saying it's not, you know, okay, but, but in the Greek here, it just says, in the same way the women are to be. Now, um, some people would say, right, this is referring to the deacon's wives all right now i i i don't have a a great problem with that it, it, except that it, it it doesn't seem to make too much sense because in verse 12 then paul moves on to talk about the deacon's marriage you know 
situation. So, so wouldn't you have thought that he'd, if he wanted to refer to what their wives were like, he'd have he'd have done it there. Um, but, but, but okay. I mean, I could I could buy into that. Deacon's wives, fine. Um, although, again, it's strange. Nowhere does Paul, in the two places, the two places where Paul deals with the qualification of elders, although he obviously makes it clear, as with deacons, that they must rule their households well and their family must be in order and their children must be obedient, etc., etc., nowhere does, does, does he say, well, this must be true of their wives. So why he would do that for deacons and not elders, I don't know. So I don't think that's a very good um, you know, kind of uh, understanding of this verse, but it is an acceptable understanding. It doesn't go against anything. Now, the other way that some people say this is that this is referring to deaconesses. So, in the same way, the women, i.e. the deaconesses, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Well, that, that, that is complete nonsense. And I'll, 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 I'll tell you why everything that Paul has written thus far, all right, is referring to deacons on the assumption that they're men, all right? In verse 12, he specifically says a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. Now, this verse 11, if, if this is Paul saying, oh, and by the way, the deaconesses, this must be true of them, it's, it's just crazy. Because if he was going to give qualifications and specifically say that this is for men and for women, he would build that into the passage. Clearly, this is a change in subjects. And he returns to deacons in verse 12. Because obviously, if a deaconess is merely just a female deacon, that's all. We're still talking about exactly the same thing. It's the same subject. Deaconess and deacon. I mean, if on, you know, sort of like within the parameters of what you might call the diaconate in scripture, if that diaconate contains male and female, then there are deacons and deaconesses, and they're exactly the same thing. There would be no change of subject here. But clearly, in verse 11, Paul has been dealing with deacons. In verse 11, he turns to something else, and then in verse 12, he turns back to deacons. Well, that would certainly argue that to say that this is referring to the deacons' wives is acceptable. As I say, that doesn't go against anything in Scripture. So if that's the one you want to go with, fine. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, and as I say, the deacons' wives things, I, I could buy into that, uh, that this is deaconesses is, is just ridiculous. I mean, there's just, you know, sort of no way. That just doesn't make the slightest bit of sense in any way at all. And, uh, in, and I suppose in the same way, Paul could have actually clearly put deaconesses rather than just the women. I mean, when he's talking about the deacons, he doesn't say the men, and then you have to work out that it's deacons. He says deacons. Well, if he'd have wanted to be referring to the women, as he, he could have done that. So, so that is crazy. But what I wonder whether this is referring to, and I admit it's odd, and it's easier to demonstrate what it doesn't mean than what it does mean, but I wonder if what he's throwing in here is, is, is the fact that it's very, very clear in Scripture that many, many practical functions were done by the women in the church. Now, you know, sort of before anyone starts jumping up and down, I'm not now saying that the women are just there to make the coffee and just there to make the love feast or things like that. I'm not saying that in the sleep, in, in, in the slightest. But nevertheless, there is a very, very female role in the church when it comes to practical matters, and even possibly in helping the deacons. Even Paul, the way he refers to some of the women who helped him so much when he was with the churches they were part of, and much of this was practical matters. Now, not only practical matters, Paul would have taken advice and spiritual counsel from other believers, be they men or women. But there was a very specific way in which Paul was looked after by the women. He didn't, after all, have a wife of his own to look after him, and neither did his team. When Peter travelled out, well, he was married, that was fine. But Paul and his team, a lot of the apostles in that sense, I mean, Paul was one of the twelve, but, you know, sort of a lot of the apostles in the wider sense would have been, you know, the travelling 
you know, guys who travelled around churches to plant new churches or to help out existing ones, a lot of them would have been single. So, so there was a, a, a tremendous amount for the women folk to do. And I'm wondering if what Paul is saying here, oh, by the way, he's saying, when it comes to all the practical things, all the ways that the women, you know, the women help, he said, that's, that's wonderful. But when women are kind of, you know, sort of like known for that, then make sure this must be true of them. This must be true of them. You know, so, so, so the women must show forth this Christian maturity as well. And again, you've got the same thing worthy of respect, the same as the deacons, not malicious talkers. Well, that's, that's, that's important. Obviously, you know, there's no point, you know, have, having someone who's looked up to who's, uh, who's got a bad mouth, obviously. And uh, temperate, well, that's, you know, that's the same as, you know, obviously you don't want someone who's, who's legless and trustworthy in everything. So here he's, he's talking about that rounded, mature Christian feminine character that any women who are recognised in the churches as being real helpers, you know, sort of like if, you know, if, you know maybe uh, someone's coming in from the outside, maybe a, a, a pastor teacher and he's going to do some teaching or something like that, and people might say, well, look, I'll, I'll tell you, when... When you go over to the church in Philippi, will you, you, you find out this particular lady. You, you see if you can stay with her and her husband. Because, oh, the husband's lovely, but that lady, she is so good at looking after... You see, it's this kind of thing. And women would have been known for their um, servant ministries in the same way that, uh, that churches acknowledge the need for deacons as well. So I think that, that, that kind of sorts out that, that particular verse there. Now one, one other verse that we've just got to turn to on this, and it's Romans, Romans 16, and um, Romans 16 and verse 1. And we've got a little, little, little translation thing to do here. Now Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancreia. Now, some translations of the Bible translate that word servant as deaconess. And people say, look, there you are, you can have a deaconess. Now, again, what we've got to remember is that the word translated deaconess is literally just the word servant. Phoebe here is an example of the very thing that I've just been saying. Paul recognised Phoebe in this particular church as being outstanding in her servanthood. And Phoebe, I'm sure, would have been someone that when Paul was in town, he would have been wanting, well, you know, maybe staying in her household or at least being very close to her household because he came to depend on her and to respect her. And he is commending the church to her. And so he's saying, look, hey, if you ever pass by Sancria, wow, that's, that's, that's the house you want to be praying that you'll get an invitation to. So, so again there, it's a translation thing. It's not, it's not good uh, that it's translated deaconess because everything else in Scripture mitigates against the idea of um, women being deacons. And so therefore, when you're translating scripture, it's got to be consistent with the rest of scripture. And of course, you know, as we're, we're seeing again and again and again, leadership is male. And so therefore, to have deacons um, who are female, and uh, after all, if one of the qualifications is that they're a proper and good head of their family, how could that possibly apply to the women folk? I mean, it's, it's, it's just silly. Right, okay, well, um, I think that uh, uh, should have knocked deacons on the head. Um, and remember what I said earlier, the whole thing is that if ever, or please God, whenever, because we've become other, you know, other churches have, you know, happened from us and that, you know, kind of like we got lots of churches, um, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that then any time that we need deacons, then the Holy Spirit will make us aware of that. But I just want to reiterate what I was saying earlier about this thing about it not determ not turning into networks of churches under an umbrella, okay? Because 
I mean, again, it's important to realise that when new churches come into being, and this is this is what we're we're, we're praying for. I mean, to a certain extent, when it's time to divide, you can you know divide into two churches and and kind of share out the mature brothers and and sisters between both. But let's let's say even more wonderfully that you know there was a, a, a outpouring of the spirit and we saw lots of people get saved i mean that would be wonderful i mean i've seen it in the past and if we saw that again that would be great you know and you could get maybe 50 60 100 you know who knows suddenly lots of people are getting converted and you've got to then have lots of individual churches but mostly populated by new converts so there's no leadership within those converts now in a situation like that we would share out our leadership around those churches you know so that some of us we would kind of every week be in a different church and we would kind of be acting as elders in those churches until such time as those churches recognized elders amongst themselves as they were all maturing in the Lord and even when they have got elders all right there might still be you know churches might say well, look Beresa we'd still like you to travel around and do a bit of teaching here and there and that that's fine so you can certainly have when you have groups of churches like that in an area you can certainly have ministries and functions and resources that are shared out church to church but here's the important thing as long as you understand that each church governs itself and that this leadership is not hierarchical, so it's not a question of having a group of men who are recognised as what you call translocal ministries, but they are the leaders and the churches are under them. And it, I mean, no, absolutely not. Leadership is non-hierarchical. The moment you believe in hierarchical leadership, that's when you get denominations. And remember, there are denominations of house churches out there, or so-called house churches. Well, over um, in some parts of the world, there are denominational house churches. By denominational, what I mean is that they're all under a particular umbrella. They've got the same big leader over them, and it all comes down a hierarchy. The fact that, that, that they meet in houses is neither here nor there. And, and again, this is why I'd like to talk about biblical church rather than house church. You can be a house church, but be unbiblical in every other regard. So you can have house church denominations, no problem, and that is completely wrong. And of course, it's because they believe that leadership is hierarchical but when you don't and when you understand that each church governs itself and if churches in an area come together to make you know something that affects all of them then whatever grouping of churches you've got it's that grouping that decides what it wants to do it's not the leaders deciding what happens and so therefore you can have uh, functioning leadership ministries traveling around building up each church but no one sees them as being in charge each church remains independent and therefore you can truly have um, churches in an area plural in some regards working together okay but without becoming a little networked denomination under some particular umbrella anything like that and uh, so that's that's tremendously important and let me say as well that when you when it comes to people coming together churches coming together because there are some that what they want to do is to be forever bringing all the little churches together under one roof once a month for a big worship celebration thing something like that now let me say in scripture we do see churches of an area so when I say churches I'm talking about lots of little biblical churches in an area all functioning the way that we're seeing in this series okay independent self-governing okay we do see occasions when churches of an area come together as the church if you like of that area but whenever we see that it is never for worship it is never for big meetings with, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of leaders up the front leading the worship and all this sort of stuff. When they got together as churches, it was always when a decision needed to be made that affected them all. Indeed, the one example we've seen just now, when deacons were needed to meet the need of the widows being left out, and the other occasion we see in Scripture, 
was um, when the, the, the whole thing about the circumcision party needed to be sorted out. Did Gentiles have to be circumcised or not? And so Paul came down from Antioch and there was a big get-together of the churches in Jerusalem. And so they're, they're the only instances in that regard. And, uh, yeah, we can see in Acts 2 that there could be teaching. I mean, you could bring churches together, you know, in a area every now and then if there's a teacher coming through. But all these, these big get-togethers for worships, you don't see anything like that in Scripture at all. And uh, so, you know, if, if they didn't do it, I, I would not see any, any need for um, any other churches to, to be doing it either. Okay, right, so um, there... There we go, a bit of an insight into the inter-church setup that one day, please God, we, we will have here. Um, and uh, many, many, many questions that we can't answer about it, but the Lord will show us what to do when that happens. And, uh, but remember, the principle that is inviolable, the principle that we will never go against in any way at all, is this principle that each church is self-governing. And even if we help plant out a church, and even if we say leadership from here helps it until it's got its own, we will not be the mother church planting out a daughter church or anything like that. We will not be the big cheese church. And if we are able to help them, it will only be until they don't need our help anymore or until they're able to help us as much as we're able to help them. So the, the, the hierarchy, the, having non-hierarchical leadership, that is a non-negotiable, all right? And as long as we keep that very clearly in our minds, then we can see inter-church activity when, please God, we have lots of other biblical churches around. We can then see it safely without, you know, the big guns wanting to take it over and turn it into a denomination and become their baby. And there they are, the hierarchy, you know, the umbrella over their network or their stream of churches. Okay, right, well, we'll, we'll call that a day there. And um, next time we turn much more specifically to uh, issues uh, surrounding uh, the women in the church. So we'll um, end it there.